21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're International Relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're decoding global politics, so you don't have to. We are... The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I am your host, Steve Powley. Also, as always, is with me my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How are you doing, Sums? I am doing all right, Steve. Okay. Very, you have a good Thanksgiving holiday? Did. Laid low. Uh, it was raining here in Los Angeles, which means that it's time to stay off the streets because Angelinos are uh, bad drivers when there's good weather, and they are homicidal maniacs when there's even a little bit of moisture out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I would say that I don't even attempt driving uh, in the rain, except that I actually did attempt it uh, this past <laughs> this past week with a car full of children uh, and my wife in the backseat frantically trying to keep them calm on the way to uh, to Palm Springs. To, uh, to be clear, these were your children. Yeah, yeah, no, we didn't just uh, find them. Not uh, this carnival. Not this no. Thanksgiving. You know, uh, that's that's a subject for another podcast. Um, this episode, where are we? What are we talking about? Well, Steve, uh, segueing away from kidnapping, this this week <laughs> we are in Madrid. Oh, cool, Madrid, and uh, I should say that uh, we're coming at you Tuesday, December third, as well. All right, what's going on in Madrid? Well, uh, many things are going on in Madrid, but the most important global event that is happening in Madrid is COP25. COP. COP. Like RoboCop? Uh, like TimeCop? I yeah. love TimeCop. Uh, okay, that makes you one of like five people that like Jean-Claude Van Damme's uh, TimeCop. But we are dealing with COP, the Conference of Parties, which is uh, the UN's annual conference to address climate change. Oh, that is nowhere near as cool. I was excited that it would be, uh, first, it had something to do with law enforcement, uh, you know, ideally uh, crappy action movies. Second, that it had something to do with partying. Um, neither of those things are true. You're talking about climate change, um, which admittedly is quite important. Okay, so we're, we're, at, we're at the COP. We're at COP 25, right? Which means that this has been going for 25 years. Should we do a yeah. uh, previously on climate change? Yeah, or well, COP? let's do previously on, but let's stop at let's start at COP twenty one, which was the most important of all the cops, and that was Paris. Yes, four years ago in twenty fifteen, the most important climate change agreement in the history of the world was signed by uh by by almost 200 countries and there were four major points that came out of the paris agreements the first was to try and keep global temperatures well below two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial revolution times so basically before the mid uh eight we're shooting to try and keep the average global temperature uh, below two degrees above what it was in like 1860. This is something right. climate scientists can do. Got it. Number two was to limit the amount of greenhouse gases emitted by human activity to the same to the same levels that the Earth can naturally absorb. And we're shooting for this to start 
around 2050, but really there's a moving target between 2050 and 2100. That's a big, <laughs> that's a big gap. <laughs> yeah. You're starting, if you're following along, you're starting to see why uh, international law is uh, both really aspirational and also not necessarily a thing. Anyway, uh-huh. number three was for rich countries like the United States, like Western European countries, to help poor nations by providing climate finance to help adopt to climate change. This is okay. what you call like, hey, let's try and keep low-lying nations like Vietnam and Bangladesh from having to become massively, massively screwed and have full-scale societal change because of climate make- migration and changing economies. Okay? Right, Yeah. And the fourth point, and this brings us to COP25, is to review each country's contribution to cutting emissions every five years to make sure that countries are scaling up to the challenges they agreed to in COP21, the Paris Agreements. Got it. Okay, thank you for setting the table there. Um, So that brings us to Madrid. Uh, Incidentally, COP25 was originally supposed to be in Brazil. uh, No, 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 no. Chile. Well, okay. It, it, it was Chile. Before it was Chile, it was actually supposed to be Brazil, uh, except that uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the, the right-wing uh, populist president of Brazil, who we talked about in episode three, uh, basically begged off that responsibility uh, because he is basically a climate denier, more or less. Uh, so th- from there, we went to uh, Sebastian Piñera's Chile, uh, which I think we talked about in episode, what was it, 12? Yeah, it was about um, six weeks ago. So yeah, that's 12. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, uh, Chile is still in the throes of like extremely serious civil unrest. <laughs> so uh, we went to our third choice, which is Madrid, uh, which seems actually like a pretty darn good third choice, if you ask me. Yeah, soft landing. It's soft landing, but yeah, it's it is kind of interesting to see uh, that we. <laughs> COP25 actually visited some of the places that we talked about on the way to Madrid. Um, That's due true. To unrest. <laughs> COP25, Madrid, uh, what we're basically doing is we're checking in on everybody's progress after having made these commitments in 2015 in Paris, the Paris Agreements, um, where the leader of every country basically said, yes, we are going to start scaling down our carbon emissions on a national level. Right, and so we're going to check in in twenty in uh, um, COP twenty five, right? No, we'll check in in COP twenty six, which is Edinburgh uh, next year. This is one of the reasons Uh, why I was already starting to poop on the UN and international law and international agreements because this is what this is the biggest climate story happening right now, and obviously climate is a huge deal both politically and at. Anyway, it's a big story, but a big reason for for COP25, one of the driving reasons, is to set a lot of the rules for COP26 Edinburgh, which will be I see. a bigger one. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we have a COP every year, right? Um, not every year is the biggest COP around. Uh, COP21, massive COP, uh, <laughs> Paris COP. Um, COP25, getting a lot of attention, even though it's not... Uh, where we're actually going to check in on progress um, from Paris, um, but we're we're thinking ahead to that basically. Um, yeah, that's right. Okay, got it. Uh, is Greta Thunberg there? So Greta Thunberg has arrived. She just got to Lisbon, I think, yesterday. And you say, okay, well, Lisbon's in Portugal. It's not Madrid in Spain. Yes, well, she boats. She does not fly. Yep. <laughs> 
And uh, as part of symbolic politics, she does she won't contribute. She will contribute as little as possible to uh, to the growing carbon problem in the world. And so she takes boats instead of planes, which contribute to our carbon problem. I have an even better idea. She should be using Zoom video chat. Um, and no, this is not a, a paid placement. Um, but we'll get to those would, later. Yeah, <laughs> depending on audience growth. Um, but um, yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, she is trying to make a point. Uh, we talked about uh, Thunberg and kind of her initiative to draw attention uh, via the climate strike um, in week six or seven, I forget exactly which. Um, yeah, but one of her we're going to keep shows. talking about climate and climate politics because it's not going anywhere. In fact, it's going to become a more and more regular part of politics as climate change happens at a more and more noticeable rate. Right. Okay. Um, so back to COP25. We've got Thunberg there, or I guess in the neighborhood, in the vicinity. She's in on Iberia. her way there. Yeah, she's she's on the peninsula. Exactly. Um, so um, how are we doing, uh, generally speaking, in implementing all of these uh, agreements that we made in Paris? Are we going to hit that two degree threshold, ideally 1.5 degree? No. <laughs> Oh. I mean, I, I mean, I, I can say I can say more about this, but the very short answer is no. In fact, okay. the uh, the Portuguese uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez has basically come out. Not basically, he has explicitly come out at the beginning of of COP twenty five in in Madrid and said, "We're not going to hit it. Everyone needs to take this much, 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 much more seriously." Okay. Um... So you're telling me a couple different things. One is that we are way off course um, to hit these targets. Um, the 1.5 degree target is a more aggressive target than the two degree target, obviously, but we're already at 1.1 degrees. And scientists now think that 1.5 is actually the safe threshold and two is no longer a safe threshold. So our margin of error has only decreased as the science has improved. That's number one. Number two, carbon emissions are actually growing. Um, and they're growing uh, because the global economy is growing, which is something that we want, um, which means that energy demand is growing. Um, so not only are we not reducing 7 to 8% a year uh, on a per country basis, we're actually growing 1% to 2% a year. So we're pointed in the wrong direction still. Which is to say that the Paris Agreement which was a huge accomplishment to get that much uh, that much agreement from so many countries, including the United States, has in fact not it has not stuck in the ways anybody would have hoped it would have. No, um, starting in the United States, um, and you know we can get into that perhaps after the break, um, but also in China, also in the EU, um, we're starting to see that uh, we're we're just nowhere near close to hitting our targets. And uh, we're going to need to start thinking about what that means on a more concrete level. Um, so let's take a quick break and then dive into it. Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can 
email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show. And we are back. Um, we are talking about COP25 uh, in Madrid, uh, the sort of conference of the parties to the UN Global Climate Agreement um, or Climate Summit. Right, Sumi? Yeah, that's right. And uh, let's get right back into the guts of this thing. So one of the things that came out of COP21, the Paris Agreements, which is still a hot topic, political topic here in the United States, the goals were to either uh, keep warming below 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius. So to keep it at 2 degrees, uh, that would require, by 2030, that would require global emissions cuts of about 25% to get to one. Yeah, go ahead. To to kind of put us on the right trajectory from where we are now, is what you're saying. Yeah, from where we are right now to get to, to keep warming below 2 degrees. We, it would require worldwide emissions cuts of 25%. Okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And what about 1.5 degrees? Well, for 1.5, that would require an emissions cut of 55%. Ooh, that is a spicy meatball. Yeah. That's, um, that's about 7.5%, 8% a year from now till 2030. That's rough. Um, so just to put that in context, what that would actually mean um, in terms of people's everyday lives. Um, The only way we've seen to reliably reduce global carbon emissions on a truly global global scale is actually a global recession. And we saw this in 2008 with the Great Recession. Uh, In 2008, global emissions actually fell 2% um, because economic activity contracted. People stopped buying stuff. They stopped traveling so much. And we actually saw this in the record of the atmosphere. Right. So if you take that as a rule of thumb and you expand that from negative 2% to negative 8%, which is where you just said we need to be annually, uh, that entails multiplying the economic pain of the Great Recession by four times, roughly, in order to hit that target by 2030, uh, if I'm doing my math correctly. And uh, the only surefire way that's been found outside of a recession um, to to reduce um, uh fossil fuel use is actually carbon pricing. Uh, it's, it's bringing in the external costs and, uh, of your burger or your tank of gas or your plane ticket. Um, there's an implicit, there's a, uh, there's an obvious cost, the sticker price of whatever it is you're buying. Uh, and then on top of that, there's the climate cost uh, that currently is not measured and literally gets lost in the wind, um, except that uh, we all pay eventually as we're seeing. That's right. Um, and this is a big, this is one of the big things that will actually be discussed over the next, uh, what is it, 10 days at COP25 in Madrid is how to have better accounting for carbon swaps and other mechanisms to try and reduce carbon emissions. Right. But the thing is, like, in order to uh, institute a carbon market, that entails making everything more expensive. Right, a lot more expensive in 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 most cases that will actually move us towards our goal. Um, and in order to make things more expensive, uh, you have to make voters angry, uh, and that's generally not a good thing to do politically, right? <laughs> yeah, it's this is the 
delicate part of diplomacy and it gets very hard when we're dealing with such a complex issue. So when we talk about carbon, uh, how to deal with carbon emissions on an international level, basically what we're saying is, well, there are wealthy countries that might uh, emit more carbon and they have to figure out a way to either cut their own emissions or to pay, sell other sell carbon so that other countries will then offset and will still end up emitting less carbon overall, right? Right. The point is, though, that somebody has to pay, and they have to pay a lot. Sure. Um, whether it's consumers uh, directly, uh, which is probably the most efficient way to do it, um, is to actually just add on to the price tag of that uh, tank of gas so that it actually reflects the damage that it's doing to the climate so that your gallon of gas goes from what is an already a, pr- a pretty high $4 a gallon in California to something like $10 a gallon. Um, and the rest of the country, what, whatever that math would be for all the other states. Um, and uh, in order to do that, um, you have a democratic government, right? Uh, that makes the laws that, uh, sets up the carbon market. Um, do you think every, anybody's going to vote to, uh, increase the cost of a tank of gas by two and a half times? Well, no, the answer, the short answer to your question is no. Um, right. pretty much, we're going to start going down a list of solutions that get discussed and they're all going to come back with one quick answer, which is that's going to be it's going to be really hard politically, political will either amongst uh, elites like legislature, legislators or amongst the, the people in general is going to be very, very hard to push. Through. Yeah. And even even in states uh, or, or countries that have done really well uh, when it comes to climate matters, like um, in the European Union, uh, which takes climate way more seriously than the United States does and has done way more. Um People will only pay so much, uh, and we see this in France uh, with the yellow vest protesters um, that uh, President Emmanuel Macron has had to deal with, um, because France uh, is already paying into uh, the carbon pricing scheme of the European Union, where carbon is getting progressively more expensive, and it's having the desired effect of driving down carbon usage there, right? But trying to do anything above that. Uh, make gas even more expensive for voters in France, and you have people on the streets in yellow vests uh, basically shutting down the roads. Um, they're just not going to have it. There is, There are minimal levels of a lifestyle that general publics are willing to deal with. Then we go to the next level up, and this is probably more applicable here in the U.S. when we're talking about elites and legislators, where in this country uh, we have we have a bipartisan divide on whether or not climate change is in fact a thing. The Republican Party just does not believe in acting on this. And this is a massive problem of political will for now the world's second largest carbon emitter, but historically, and certainly by all cumulative measures, the largest carbon emitter in the history of the world. Yeah, unquestionably. Uh, you know, We use more energy than, per capita than most other countries. Um, certainly, most other large countries, um, You know, we have a very high carbon lifestyle uh, that we've grown accustomed to, that we were born into, and that many of us see as our birthright. To put a little bit of, of sunlight into what has been a very dark episode so far, uh, yeah. earlier this year, there was a Pew Research uh, survey and it showed that more than half of Republicans under the age of 38 
say that the federal government should be doing more about climate change, which is to say there's a massive generational divide that supersedes political divides in the United States. Which makes perfect sense, right? But how long is it going to take for us to do that population replacement and for the Republican Party to come around on stuff like uh, carbon pricing? Um, Probably a decade or two, right? Yeah. And we don't have that time. (laughs) Nope. We do not. We need to be moving at 7 to 8% a year downwards every year starting now until 2030. Yeah. To your point uh, about uh, the Republican Party moving too slowly on this stuff, um, I'll give you two quick examples. One, bring us back to COP25. Uh, from the news reports I read, there are no members of the executive branch, uh, the White House, any of the departments that are going to represent the United States at COP25. However, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, is leading a delegation of 14 Democrats to show that the U.S. does, in fact, care about climate change. This is, this is while symbolically very nice, also kind of empty because it is up to the president to decide whether or not we're going to stay in the Paris agreements and whether or not this and, and how to move policy on trying to reach those Paris agreements. Right. That's on a federal level. Um, interestingly, uh, individual states, cities, counties, and businesses have all pledged to adhere to the, the Paris targets. Um, so you actually have a very large portion of the United States, more than half of the population and more than half of the economy. Not necessarily more than half of the pollution, though. Um, basically signing up to Paris all by themselves, right? Including the state of California, the city of Los Angeles, uh, lots of places. Um, and it, it's way better than nothing. Um, it's actually making a dent. Uh, but you're right. Like when push comes to shove, like we need everybody on board and we need the federal federal government to do things only the federal government can do, like build a national market for carbon. You know, um, there are state markets now and they're trying to cooperate and link together. Um, and, you know, as you said, uh, establish common forms of exchange with the Europeans and stuff like this, but there's only so much they can do separately. Right. And so, I just want to say this other one thing about the Republican Party and the kind of insanity of this. If you remember a couple months back, there was a bizarre moment where the president of the United States, who has called climate change, amongst other things, a hoax created by the Chinese, uh, where he talked about trying to buy Greenland. Do you remember this shit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it turned out that there was actually a very reasonable, reasonable logic behind trying to acquire more influence in Greenland, which was that as as the uh, the ice melts in Greenland, there would be new shipping lanes that would open up, which would make shipping go faster, as well as opening up new opportunities to explore for minerals and other things that you can't get to now because of the ice. Which is to say that tacitly, the Republican Party is agrees that climate change is a thing when it comes to stuff like security and economic gain, but not when it comes to actually dealing with climate change. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, what they're unwilling to do is form the link between human economic activity, um, in particular burning fossil fuels, and climate change. They're saying, yes, climate change is a thing, but it's just natural variation, has to do with sunspots, yada, 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 like who knows, right? There are any number... There are any number of fake explanations that their uh, rent-a-PhDs will produce, um, 
but uh, it's all a smokescreen. It's yeah. dif- and disinformation. You have smart conservatives that are not old, like Tom Cotton from Arkansas, who will say, I think climate change is probably real, but we should let the market handle it. Yeah. And he's not necessarily wrong. There is a conservative solution to climate change. It involves pricing carbon. <laughs> like, I think this was Milton Freeman's idea originally. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is actually the free market solution to, to bring in that externality. And in some ways, you know, the market is in fact responding. There are more jobs in clean energy now than there are in the old fossil fuel energy markets, as well as there, the, since Trump has come into office, clean energy stocks are doing better than our sort of legacy energy stocks, which is to say the market is responding. There is a political problem. And it's not just an American political problem. I want to point that out as well. No, it's it, there's it's not. Uh, we can talk about China. We can talk about India. Uh, China is actually the number one emitter of uh, carbon currently, um, even though uh, the U.S. has sort of a lifetime record. China is in the in the pole position by a wide margin and still growing, right? Um, yeah, but China's also got this sort of mixed bag. There's you know there are climate modelers. And climate scientists that followed the follow Chinese policy on this stuff very carefully, and China has been moving away from coal-fired power plants very rapidly over the last several years. Not just because they say, "Okay, well, climate change is real; we need to do something about this," so they're a step ahead of the Republican Party, but they also have a domestic political problem. You know, if you looked at the most polluted cities in the world 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd see a mix of Chinese and Indian cities. Now it's mostly Indian cities. But so you say, okay, the Chinese are moving in the right direction. Alas, not entirely, because then when you look at what the Chinese are doing abroad, they're trying to expand influence throughout Asia and into Eurasia. There, part of this means building uh, more and more infrastructure with Chinese company and Chinese companies. A lot of this also means that China has stopped building these coal-fired power plants in mainland China, and they're building them abroad, which is to say it's global warming, not just China warming. Right. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, that's that's crazy um, that they're making that trade-off. Uh, on top of that, though, they still have plenty of legacy coal power uh, plants sure running yeah. in China that they cannot decommission. Because it's still cheaper and it takes too long uh, to set up new infrastructure. And the one thing that even Xi Jinping, who is the absolute dictator of China, cannot do is uh, uh, stop growing economically, right? He has to deliver economic growth and jobs. Otherwise, the Chinese Communist Party is going to get kicked out in a revolution. Like he's made a deal with the people, which is we are in charge absolutely politically, right? Uh, but in return, we are going to bring you out of poverty and turn turn you into basically middle-class global citizens by the hundreds of millions. And he's been able to deliver on that largely, um, or, you know, or the Communist Party has over the course of the last several decades. The thing is, he has to keep that ball rolling. He can never interrupt it. And that makes uh, really addressing uh, the coal power problem in China very difficult. Uh, on anything other than a gradual and incremental basis, which is not what we need from China. 
Uh, I think, yeah, Steve, these are, these are really important points. And I think, especially for an American audience, these are things to keep bringing up. There's a tendency when Americans think about and hear about international challenges, like the rise of China and think like, okay, these things are, these challenges are 10 foot tall monsters with a million arms and they're all knowing and all, all powerful. China's got a lot of domestic problems. And one of yeah. them is this is this environmental issue. You're you're spot on. I think China's lost something like fifty percent of its freshwater rivers in the last sixty years. Yeah, China is very vulnerable. Um, actually, more vulnerable than the United States in a lot of ways to climate change. So yes, they are taking it seriously, but there's only so much they can do because they have a political problem too. They're not even a democracy, and they have a political problem. It's like, you know, ultimately, it's very difficult to ask people to substantially impact their lifestyles and livelihoods in a way that will generate extremely serious economic pain immediately, right? And we're talking about on the order of no longer driving your car, not eating meat, not flying, not using air conditioning, like really, really cutting back very, very heavily. Um, it's, it's just hard to get anybody to want to do that. Um, whether they have, especially if they have access right now, uh, but even if they don't have access, right? Even if they're in a poor country and they're aspirational and they want to grow into these things, they want to be able to eat more meat. They want air conditioning. If they're in a hot country like India, um, they want heating instead of burning dung. You know, it's like uh, there are billions of people that are still trying to grow out of abject poverty. And we're now saying, well, you're not going to be able to do it the easy way. You have to do it the hard way, right? Uh, and, you know, part of what is happening at COP25, if I understand correctly, is the rich countries uh, that are on board are trying to find a way to help the poor countries out that's through right. like a, de a development bank and yeah. technology transfer, right? No, that's, that's exactly right. You know, we, you know, I've made fun of COP25 and the sort of slow, uneven process of international institutions like the UN and and diplomacy, but that's right. There's in fact important stuff going on there, and one of them is what you just talked about. There are wealthy countries that are moving ahead with trying to help out poorer countries, more susceptible countries, to mitigate the onset of climate change and what it might mean for their societies. Yeah, and try to get them to grow into middle, a middle class lifestyle the you know quote unquote right way the low carbon way um, so providing solar technology wind technology tidal technology geothermal like you name it right yeah what you're talking All these about are... is a new model of green development which we exactly don't, we don't know that it there's okay we've we've clearly tried the environmentally dirty model of development in the US and Western Europe and China and India and all over the world and we've seen that it works for development but there's very little evidence to say that it won't work if we try it green because no one's tried it nobody's tried it um but well, we it's have just to try it uh we have to try a lot of different things all at the same time <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and again, costs and building out infrastructure uh, are the two sort of main sticking points. It takes time to build infrastructure. It It is expensive to build new stuff instead of just reusing old stuff. Uh, the money has to come from somewhere. Right. Um, and so we've kind of discussed the international diplomatic angle uh, to this. We've talked a little bit about the United States and the problem of political will. Um, there's kind of another path 
that people are trying as well. It's the bottom-up path. It's the bottom-up approach uh, that uh, Greta Thunberg and um, the, uh, the, the children's school strike, um, they're basically trying to establish a norm um, or a taboo, uh, basically trying to shame people um, against using carbon uh, as much as they do. And they're trying to start an international movement that way and lower international consumption basically um, through, uh, you know, a global movement. Um, so bottom up, right? What do you think the prospects for that are? Uh, look, I right now, I think like everything we talk about in ways to deal with climate change, the answer is right now it's going to be tough. But I think over time, norms like eating less meat, uh, using more public transportation, using uh, using bicycles, these things that don't require fossil fuels to, to going, moving, moving to more electric vehicles. I think these are going to be more amenable, again, as uh, populations get replaced. And I want to be explicit about population replacement because it's an ugly thing. But in, in human terms, it's an ugly thing. But I'm sorry, it's, it's, it should be said. Look, uh, population replacement means that old people die or <laughs> or people with a politically untenable position are no longer in positions to affect policies. And that happens. Right. And so that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you're, you're talking about population replacement, right? Which takes a number of generations, right? It takes decades. Uh, and we don't have that kind of time. Uh, even if Trump gets booted out of office, right? Uh, we're still going to have a lot of Republicans in Congress representing, uh, frankly, old white boomers. Yeah, hold in... on, man. Listen, <laughs> for our entire lives, the Republican Party was the party of minimal regulation and free trade. And then Trump right. come, Trump descends down the golden escalator in Trump Tower, and they are nowhere, nowhere to be seen when it comes to all of his anti-free trade, his tariffs, all those things. They have all gone silent. So I'm willing to say that if it's politically expedient or, in fact, politically necessary to keep their jobs, I think the Republican Party will come around real fast. Yeah, but when is that going to happen, right? That's the critical question. And is it going to happen in time to cut emissions by 55% uh, by 2030? Yeah, uh, the, the short answer to that is no. I will say the, the answer is no. The, the answer, answer is no. Yeah. Okay. So we've gone through international diplomacy. We've gone through top down. We've gone through bottom up. The answer has been no, no, and no. So uh, for our next time on COP25 or climate change, uh, where do we go? Uh, I'll tell you where we go. We go, frankly, to stuff that sounds kind of like science fiction, right? Which is quite honestly fine. Imagination is one of the great things about our species. And yeah. If, in fact, all of our existing tools for dealing with the problem seem insufficient, then we should go to questions of imagination. Right. And that's where we're at right now. We have a lot of smart people actually investigating things like uh, shooting aerosols into the upper atmosphere to simulate a volcanic explosion and generate kind of like uh, an artificial winter um, and bring down the temperature that way. Um, there are actually tests being run, uh, by, I think Harvard, um, in the upper atmosphere. They're, they're starting to spread sulfur aerosols and stuff like that. 
uh, and gather data to see whether or not it could be an effective solution at some point in the future. There is a very low-tech method, which is reforestation, planting billions or trillions of trees. One trillion um, trees, baby. One trillion trees, 12 zeros. Um, it's a lot of trees. Uh, we've also chopped down a lot of trees. There are other startups working on taking carbon out of the air uh, on a, a, like a machinery basis uh, and basically bottling it up and selling it to industry or storing it underground. Um, you know, and uh, you know the question is whether those markets are big enough. Um, who's going to be paying? For that carbon, these solutions need a business model because they require building a lot of expensive machinery. So somebody has to pay for it, whether it's industry or whether it's venture capital, um, which probably won't scale to the level we need, or government, right? Um, and then we run into the same political will problem that and we've been talking. Part about. of me is going to be a little bit mad if the Tom Cotton approach of the market solves this problem it ends up being correct. I mean, I'll be happy, but I'll be a little bit mad because of the political will problem that we've talked about. Like, mm. again, the divide between where the market, like all these exciting, innovative uh, ventures that the market is is testing out. Yeah, they're, they're very exciting. But again, to bring it back briefly to the political, there was a Department of Energy press release earlier this year that referred to fossil fuels as, quote, molecules of freedom. and <laughs> You're making that up, right? <laughs> You're bullshitting I me. I swear to God. Oh, we're going to throw the Forbes article that I got this from into the show notes. I could not, oh, man. Could not have made that up. And That's oh, a throwback oh. to uh, to uh, the W administration. Yeah, you ready, Steve? Not in a good way. Oh, Steve, it gets worse. Get ready to uh, unleash the inner 14-year-old in you. They, the, <laughs> the DOE press release also specifically called natural gas, and I quote, Freedom gas, freedom gas. I got here. Freedom gas, right here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if my mic can pick it up, but uh, oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. Um, so producer Pete actually had a question that was a really good question. He was like, "Uh, what about nuclear power?" And then I was like, "Yeah, what about nuclear power? Um, isn't that going to have to be like a major part of any solution to the climate problem? Because it is well understood. It's scalable." Um, it is clean, uh, and we can actually do it, uh, right? It's been tried hundreds of times all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, it's proven. Yeah, yeah um, there's 99 operating nuclear power plants in the U.S. right now. Yes, and, you know, we could conceivably build hundreds more and, you know, get off of fossil fuels a lot faster. Why don't we do that? Uh, well, people are scared of nuclear power, including environmentalists, including climate activists are terrified of nuclear power and they want nothing to do with it, which is kind of a weird contradiction, if you ask me. But then you go to Japan and you look at what happened with Fukushima, uh, which will come out to, I don't even know how much in monetary damages, but uh, it will take probably a century to clean up something like that. Uh, and you start to kind of understand where they're coming from. Right. When when nuclear goes bad, it goes super bad and it goes yeah. in ways that are, are international stories. Like, for example, our pilot episode uh, uh-huh. for, for loyal <laughs> listeners was about a Russian nuclear uh, missile explosion that they that the Russians immediately tried to cover up. 
unsuccessfully. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, that's a throwback. Um, production values are perhaps not as sophisticated uh, in episode one as they are in episode 17 or wherever we are now. Uh, but yeah, give that a listen if you hadn't. Uh, it's, you know, you can you can see how far we've come. Uh, and also what the Russians were up to four months ago when their freaking missile blew up and sprayed radiation everywhere. Yeah. That, that said about nuclear, like, look, uh, big, super developed countries like France get upwards of 60, I think around 70% of their energy from nuclear. That's uh, right. Uh, it is something to consider. There are also environmentalists in this country, serious environmental policy folks who have come out and said, look, climate change is real, nuclear, we don't like it for a lot of reasons, but if we want to be serious about climate change and combating it, we have to we have to speed up the rate at which we're going to adopt and implement nuclear power plants. And we're going to right. have to educate the public uh, on combating the, uh, the NIMBY factor, the not in my backyard right. factor. Right. This is going to have to be a part of a solution, even even yeah. if we don't like it. Yeah. Um, here's the thing, though. Um, France has been building nuclear power plants since, I believe, the 1960s uh, yeah. in order to get to that number. And so even a crash course of nuclear building would probably take a couple decades to really scale up. These are rather large, rather complex machines. Um, yes, they are well understood, but they're just they just take a long time. Plus, you need uranium, and getting uranium can be kind of tricky. Uh, you know, I typically mined. I know what's up. Yeah, right. Dealing with uh, vanfuls of Libyan terrorists and uh, stuff like that. Basically, we've arrived at this spot at the end of this podcast where everywhere we turn, the answer is no, it's not going to be fast enough. Um, so we're in the realm of science fiction, and we're talking about things that either completely don't exist yet, um, like new forms of power, nuclear power, like nuclear fusion, or we're talking about uh, artificial volcanoes and stuff like that, unproven technologies, things that haven't scaled up successfully. Um, and that's just kind of where we're at to try to uh, stay underneath this target somehow. Um, and it's not a happy message. It's not good news. Um, you know, we try to provide some levity on this podcast, but sometimes like there's nothing else to say than... Uh, we're in deep trouble. And that's kind of what we're saying, right? Right. It's it's not particularly hopeful right now. However, uh, I will say this. I, I, I maintain some levels of hope. I just don't know from where it'll go or come. I do too. Human beings are infinitely adaptable. Uh, and we do tend to pull amazing things out of our asses uh, when we absolutely need to. Uh, witness the Manhattan Project, you know, which has had major downstream implications, not all of them good, obviously. Um, but that's just one example. Um, so I think we're going to call it right there uh, until next week, guys. Yep. See you next week. See you next week.